Hi there, I'm Nihal and you're listening to the Rescue Tales podcast, the show dedicated to helping you settle your adopted rescue dog. In this episode, I'm chatting with the wonderful Dr. Moira about separation anxiety. Moira is one of only 200 certified separation anxiety trainers in the world. So if your dog is suffering with separation anxiety, make sure you listen to the whole conversation. And as always, I hope you find this episode helpful. So hi, Moira, and welcome to the Rescue Tales podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking the time. I'm really excited about this conversation because we are going to be talking about separation anxiety, which I've experienced with my dog. Uh, I know many people who struggle with it, and you are one of the top experts um, on this on this matter. So I'm excited to jump into this with you and um, go through a bunch of questions. But before we get into the nitty gritty, tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and a little bit about your background. Okay. So hi, everyone. Uh-huh. It's, it's great to be here. I am Moira. My name is Moira Hechenleitner. I'm uh, originally from Chile and I'm a veterinarian and a certified separation anxiety trainer. I have worked as a behavior consultant for around 14 years at this point. And currently I exclusively focus on separation anxiety. It's what I do day by day. <laughs> So it's it's definitely my topic and I'm super excited to be here today talking about that because as you said, there is a high prevalence more so after the pandemic and not necessarily of separation anxiety, but definitely of separation uh, related behaviors. So it's something that is important to to talk about and to educate the population so we know for sure what is our dog experiencing so we can help them. So that's actually a great segue into my first question, because I think we kind of, and when we say we, I mean, people like me who are not dog professionals kind of use the term separation anxiety to encompass other issues that might not necessarily be separation anxiety. So can you help us understand what separation anxiety is and what separation related behaviors are? Definitely. Separation related behaviors. Let's start with that one, because that's sort of the umbrella that includes everything else is every behavior that the dog could do when alone that is undesirable either for us and or for them. And so these are typical common signs that we don't usually like. For example, barking, uh, howling, uh, whining, destroying on objects when we are not at home, eliminating in places that we didn't want them to do so. Within eliminating, I mean urinating, defecating. And we tend to think that if our dogs do that, it's because they have separation anxiety. If they do it when we are not around. The issue is that there are many reasons why they could be displaying these behaviors. Those behaviors aren't as specific. And so it is important to be able to tell the difference. So a dog could, just to give you some examples, a dog could be eliminating in the wrong place because it's, the dog is a puppy and he or she hasn't learned yet where are they supposed to go to a bathroom when we're not around? Or a dog could be a high energy breed of dog. And it, so the dog needs a lot of entertainment and a lot of activities throughout the day. And if we're gone for eight hours and we're not providing uh, with, with activities to fulfill those needs, the dog might be just bored. And that's why he's destroying our objects. Or let's say we live in a busy area. And there are dogs passing um, by, you know, with their guardians throughout the day. And 
our neighbors tell us our dog is barking all day. We think that is a separation anxiety, but the truth is that the dog only is only barks when he sees someone passing by and then he stops. All of those behaviors are separation related behaviors. Now, if a dog and there are many other reasons why they could be doing those behaviors, right? There's health issues as well. And it's, it's like a rabbit hole. So we're not going to go into more detail, but just so you have an idea, separation anxiety is also considered, of course, a separation related behavior. Mm. The difference with separation anxiety though, is that, and I hope I'm not going ahead, but what, the way that we define it is basically the panic of being left alone. Mm. And so for a dog who is left alone and suffers from separation anxiety, the being left alone is an aversive stimulus. And as we were talking before uh, we, we started this podcast, that's easy to understand, right? We can, we can easily understand what those words mean, but sometimes we have a hard time relating to it and empathizing with it. And so I love analogies. And if I can make everybody do something, a little, little exercise <laughs> right now for me, I think that would be very helpful. So I would like you and you and Michal can do it as well if you want to think about something you really, really dislike. But not something that maybe you don't like too much, something that you physically dislike, something that really affects you physically. And humans, we have a lot of things that we don't like from heights to dark places, small spaces, planes, uh, I don't know, rats, snakes, etc. Right. So mine, and I'll tell you mine just so people feel more comfortable with it, is moths. Yeah. I am very much afraid of moths. And although I know objectively that it's stupid and that they are harmless and they didn't do anything to me, I can't physically tolerate it. And so if you close your eyes right now and think about something that you really dislike, think the way you feel when you're exposed to that. In my case, I would go through physiological changes if I see moths in my room, right? And so my heart rate would change, my breathing would change, I would start sweating, my pupils would dilate. And basically I would prepare for an emergency, for a flight or fight situation. And after that, as a consequence, I would do things. And so all of you that are thinking about your worst fear, you would probably start doing things after you go through those changes. And those things could be different for each of us, for any of us. Maybe my, one of my alter egos could start throwing things at the mall. Another one could just freeze here and start crying. And another one could run away. But that doesn't mean that one of them is suffering from or is suffering more than the other, right? And there's not a common rule. What it is happening, though, is that my body language is suggesting that I am in distress. And so that is separation anxiety. For that particular dog, when he's left alone, he goes through all of those physiological changes. And as a consequence, he starts doing those things that we see as barking and punting and pacing and destroying objects, et cetera, without really following a rule of thumb that they have to do a certain amount of things to qualify as separation anxiety. Okay, that's a really, really helpful analogy. I was thinking about rats. I'm petrified of rats. And as you were talking and I closed my eyes, I, I, just, I had goosebumps and I'm like, no, just, I, I had to stop thinking about them. If I see a rat, I will, physical. yeah, I will run, I will run the other, I will run the other way. Absolutely petrified me. Although no, I have no issue with any other animals and I have compassion for them, but they just scare the hell out of me. <laughs> 
And I totally get it. I, when I see moths, I, and since I was little, I would call my stepdad, even if it was 3 a.m. I remember li living in, in my parents' house and I would ask him to please, please take it with him, but don't kill it because it's not its fault to be ugly. <laughs> and yeah. I was the only person who wouldn't kill them. And so I would call him because I knew that he was going to save them and just put them outside. But it's something that you can't really, really manage, right? It's, it's, it's involuntary. And that's what the point I want to make. For a dog with separation anxiety, they don't want to do this on purpose. They are not trying to get um, a revenge or they're not trying to make you feel guilty. They're not mad at you. They're just going through something that they don't have control over. And anything that they might do in that situation is just an expression of that underlying fear and anxiety that they're experiencing. They, they can't, they can stop themselves. So as soon as I found out my dog Rosa had separation anxiety. I had a camera installed and I went out to the, I didn't realize it was an issue because I could never hear crying when I was at the door and I would linger for a few minutes. And then one day when I, the first day I put the camera in and I was walking to the gym and I picked up my phone, and I looked at the app and she was crying and I'm like, oh, maybe it's just a few minutes and she'll calm down. And it was such a heart-wrenching cry. Of course, I turned around and ran back home and it took us a while to overcome it. But it's, it was such a painful experience to observe. One of the things I was told was that if you come home, and I don't know if this is a myth or if it's true, so enlighten us, but that if you, for example, come home and you make a big deal about coming home, that's one of the things that can contribute to separation anxiety. Is, that, is there any truth to that? That's a great question. And actually, it is sort of a myth <laughs> because the truth is, that we don't really know what causes separation anxiety. Mm -hmm. We think that there is a genetic predisposition that paired with the right environmental factors would cause the onset or trigger separation anxiety signs. And so those, those environmental factors are usually in the line of change or something traumatizing for the dog. And with traumatizing, again, we get into a perspective situation, right? A relative situation because Something that's traumatizing for them doesn't necessarily look traumatizing for us, right? And so anything that could potentially change in the dog's life that could affect them could trigger this if they already had that in, in their system in a I way. See. And so I could potentially say hi to my dog in a very, very extrovert way. And if my dog doesn't have that predisposition, he will never experience separation anxiety. On the other hand, if a dog already has separation anxiety and I start ignoring my dog at different times of the day because I want to create or like help disattach my dog from me or I want my dog to not expect anything from me, what can happen is that since that dog is so used to you being there for him, you can actually increase anxiety because you don't, your dog doesn't know now what to expect. And so... What we usually recommend when you jump into our training protocol, when the dog already has separation anxiety and you have diagnosed that, is to just act low-key in a very nonchalant fashion. So the dog realizes that it's just not a big deal. It's fine. But without necessarily fully ignoring your dog, I always feel like that's sort of rude. Just because, I mean, you, if you get into a house and there's someone there, you would say hi, right? <laughs> you would just walk around like trying to ignore them, not look at them, looking at them. It's the same for our dogs, but just in a very relaxed way. Hmm. 
And if the dog, and if the dog doesn't have separation anxiety, saying hi in an expressive, nice way wouldn't necessarily be a problem. What I would recommend though, again, is that even if your dog is fine with it, just act like if it's not such a big deal, but you can say hi in a relaxed way. Okay. It's funny because it's, it's like the simple questions that we ask ourselves sometimes. And me and my husband have argued about this so many times. I cannot tell you about this whole thing about not marking coming home as a big thing and not giving our dog Rosa too much attention because she's particularly attached to me. So it's, it's, it's something that we've debated heavily over the months. So thank you for, for clarifying that. You're welcome. <laughs> and it's a big, it's a big subject that if you go into the internet nowadays and you just Google it, you will find that that advice is one of the main ones, unfortunately. So it's, there's no, there's no bad questions. You know, it's, it's always good to, to keep learning about it and to wonder about things that could or not help. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very true. Moira, one of the things that I wanted to chat with you about is what are some of the other big mistakes you see people making when it comes to trying to address separation anxiety, taking into account that they've already kind of looked at, you know, if they're, if they're separation related behaviors like destruction and, you know, those sorts of things that they've already tried things like making sure they take their dog to the vet to make sure there's nothing medical going on making sure that they may be giving extra exercise, leaving things like puzzles and stuff for enrichment. Say they've done all of that. What are some of the mistakes you see they're making in terms of when it really is, you know, separation anxiety? Those, there are, there are quite a few, but I'll try to highlight the, the most important ones, or at least the ones I think are important. The first one, and <laughs> risking being a little bit repetitive, actually assess separation anxiety. So I know you already mentioned, what if you already assess everything and you found out that it wasn't separation anxiety. And a side note about that is that the first thing I would do if I'm suspecting about this is to, as you did, to get a camera. You can, at this point, you can use Zoom. You can have a device in your house and bring your phone with you connected to Zoom. You can use even a phone, just leave it there recording, pointing towards the door where you're leaving from. Or you can get fancier and get a surveillance camera. There are many options that are inexpensive out there and observe your dog while alone, while you're actually leaving the area. That's one of the first mistakes that you can make when assessing, because many people just stay outside, either in view of the dog, the dog can see you through a window, or outside the door and the dog can totally tell that you're there. The reason why you want to really leave the area is because there is another component that could look like separation anxiety that is formal, fear of missing out, frustration. Yeah. And many dogs could react while they see the person because they can't reach them. But once the people are gone from the area and they realize that they're fully alone, they just go and settle. Mm -hmm. And you want to be able to rule that out during your assessment. Another thing you want to rule out during an assessment is the language in motion. So we talked a little bit about that before, and it's because you can definitely see a picture of what happened when you came back and see all the destruction, or you can hear your neighbor telling you that there was barking all day, but you won't be able to know if those behaviors happen while the dog was in distress. And so the body language will allow you to tell if the dog was panting and pacing while, they, while the dog was doing this, if he never settled, if it was very focused in a specific situation, the barking, or if it was throughout the whole absence, etc. So that's my first recommendation. Oh, and one more thing about the assessment is another thing that could look like separation anxiety is adapting to be left alone. And that's something we see a lot and something that 
I personally saw a lot too after the pandemic and when people were starting to get into their in-person work or, or after they adopted a dog and for the first time they were trying to leave the dog alone. So dogs that would look like separation anxiety because they will react a little bit at least while left for the first time because they don't know what this is. They're not used to it. But the difference between a separation anxiety dog and a dog who is adapting to be left alone is that the second dog has the tools or knows how to use tools to self-soothe. So even if he reacts a little bit at the beginning, you will see that the curve will start shifting throughout the absence and this size will start decreasing over time and the dog will be able to settle in a time frame of 30 minutes or so. Um, with the other dog, you will see that the signs will, will either escalate over time or will be cyclical throughout the whole absence. And that will tell you difference. And if you continue doing absences, what you would expect is that the dog who is adapting will get better over time. Yeah. The separational side of the dog will get worse over time or will remain the same. So that's the main and most important thing I like to usually share with uh, people because I think it's the most important one to really know where you're at so you know what action to take. That's the first one. The second one, I think that one of the big mistakes that are common to see are people who are confining the dog mm. and either think it's separation anxiety or the dog actually has separation anxiety. They're going through the training with the dog confined. And let me go a little bit into detail with that. So high prevalence of confinement issues. And this depends a little bit on the country where there are countries such as the, the US where I live, where people tend to confine dogs a lot. So using crates, for crate training and leaving the dogs in the crate while alone is very, very, for many hours. Where I come from, Chile, there's not a lot. Maybe now it's it's getting there a little bit, but when I was living there, dogs wouldn't be confined at all. They would usually leave free in the house when alone. And so it is very common to see in like countries like the US that there's a high prevalence of confinement issues. And it looks pretty similar to separation anxiety. Because that dog, for that dog, what's aversive is being confined. And so what happens with that is that you will see the dog panicking and you will think it's separation anxiety. But if then you assess with the dog free in the house, you won't see the same signs. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a high correlation between those two anyways. So you could also see dogs who suffer separation anxiety and display signs both free in the house and in confinement. Yeah. And it makes sense because if we come back to our rat example or moth example, let's say we're exposed to those here, but we're free to move and run away and hide. And it's, it's a little bit better, right? But let's say if afterwards I hunk off to this chair and I'm presented with the same stimulus, I'm probably going to do much worse, right? Because now I don't have control over the situation at all. I can't escape even if I try. And so... Usually when, when you see a separation anxiety dog, you see that the signs exacerbate and look worse and more intense when the dog is confined. And that's why we decide on assessing first and making sure that we know the difference. If we implement a training program for a separation anxiety dog, we usually do it with a dog free in the house. And since we're splitting the criteria so finely, there isn't really a lot of risks with having the dog free, which is the main concern of the people, more so when it's a puppy. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of people tend to give this advice, trainers, 
still, when they see separation anxiety cases, leave your dog in a crate and give food toys and teach your dog to be, you know, and that, that way your dog is going to feel secure, which, which is actually the other way around. And another one that is very common is food toys. That's a big mistake. Usually when we have a separation anxiety dog, we don't tend to work with food toys because for many different reasons. The first reason is because to be able to create a nice association between two things, you need to first present this, the thing or the stimulus that your dog doesn't like, and then give the dog what he does like. Okay. So slowly this back thing becomes a predictor of something very good about the, that is about to happen. And so what happens is that when you give food toys, you give the food toy and then you leave. And so what happens is that the dog starts learning, food toys predict that something really horrible yeah. is about to happen. And so it doesn't really work as a nice association. And on the other hand, it becomes a distraction that on one hand doesn't allow you to truly assess what's happening and the durations of what, what's happening. Because if the dog eats, maybe the dog will react after he finishes eating and you won't really know for sure what was the objective amount of time that the dog was okay with. And second, on the other hand, it creates awakening. So the dog is more motivated, it's eating, it's awake, right? And once he finishes that food, if, if the dog eats it, many dogs don't, they don't know what to do with that, with that energy that they have inside. And so it's harder, it's, a, it's more challenging for the dog to be able to settle after he finishes that toy. And instead, if you develop or implement a training program that's based in just small approximations to leaving, the dog starts falling into this lullaby and relaxing to the point that it's very easy for the dog to predict, okay, we're going to do this thing. I'm just going to nap instead of going through the challenge of having to relax while you're doing it. I hope mm. that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And there's so much to unpick there. I think it, I always find it fascinating how we as dog guardians can unintentionally create emotional conflict in our dogs when we use treats in the wrong sequence. And unfortunately with separation anxiety, unless you have something that can pop the food out once you've gone. But I, I suppose, dog, I mean, I remember when my dog Rosa was suffering with separation anxiety, she didn't want to eat. Often yeah. dogs who are very anxious just won't touch the food anyway. There's a lot of nuance in how you can modify behavior or change how an animal or even a human being for that matter feels about something, which is, which is really interesting. On, on the note of crates, because I see this come up a lot on social media, where I remember there was one person in particular, and I just always remember her post. She lived in a studio apartment. She had to work. She couldn't afford a dog sitter. And when she would leave, her dog would literally just injure himself like biting through the crate and before she decided to crate her dog who was free in the studio apartment but he was ripping up her bed she had to change her bedding multiple times or in her pillows it was really really destructive and she was like I don't know what to do you know these she put pictures of the injuries he had from trying to get out of this crate it was awful and of course lots of people were like you can't leave the dog in there and Personally, I don't use crates. I don't like using them. I don't want to be confined myself. So I don't like to confine my dog. But I understand that if I have, I mean, I don't luckily don't have a dog that rips things apart. She's very chilled when I, when I go out. But if someone does have a dog 
you know, who will be destructive, what advice would you give them to start their journey of working through these issues without necessarily using a crate? Could they use, I don't know, like, you know, bigger baby gates or just give the dog more space? Like, what are some of the things that you might say and advise someone like that who's tight on resources? They can't afford a dog sitter. They have to go to work and they live in a rented studio apartment that they can't have ruined. That's a very hard situation. It's a very, very yeah. hard situation. And one of the other things that I didn't mention before that are within the, the field of things that we do wrong when approaching separation anxiety is that for the separation anxiety training to be successful, you actually have to suspend absences at other times. And I know it sounds hard, more so in a situation such as that, I can't afford a pet sitter. But the truth is that there is a lot of creative ways that you can suspend absences from friends to family to, and you don't have to use the same uh, resource for all of your absences. You can actually mix and match until you have found a way to cover all your weeks. So there, there are offices that allow you to take your dog with you, or you can have a friend coming over. You can take your dog to somewhere, to some other person. If you belong to a certain specific community, either a religious community or another type of like hobby community, and you can research people who would be interested in, in having a dog for a day. Sometimes elderly people can't have a dog because they can't really, you know, fulfill all the, the dog's needs. They, they can't, they are not up to that responsibility yeah. due to their age, but they would love to spend a day with a the dog. They can help too. So there are many ways that are not really expensive that you can, you can find to be able to cover this. Of course, there's people who don't live where their family lives and, it, and depending on the person, there's more or less challenges. But the reason why it's so important is because you can't really teach someone to trust in this situation and to be okay with this if at the same time you're exposing that someone to the situation at a level that they can't handle. Yeah. And again, this is easy to understand in words, but sometimes it's hard to relate. So let me give you an example. I'm going to go with a very like violent example, but I think it will make a point. So. Let's think that I am afraid of drowning. And so I'm afraid to go into a pool to the deep side and not being able to touch because I feel like I'm going to drown. And I have this friend who tells me, I'll help you and I'll be there with you. So what we're going to do is that every day we're going to go and get into the water and I'm taller than you. So when we go into the, the part where you can't touch the bottom, I'll hold you and I will never let you go. So just be okay with it. It's going to be just a few seconds and we're going to be together. And then we will walk to the part where you can touch. And we do this every day. And so at some point I start trusting in the process because this person is great, right? He's helping me. I am always safe. I always feel that I can do it and maybe I can do it for a little bit longer. And maybe I can, you know, like just lose my hands, like take my hands off him for a second because I know that this process is working and he has my back. But Suddenly, one time a week, before I know it, I am standing by the edge of the pool and he just pulled, like, pushed me into the water, into the deep side. And he tells me, I don't know, I'm not going to get in. You just have to get out. I don't know how you're going to do it. You just have to swim your way out. And sorry, this is what happens. Today, I couldn't, today I couldn't get wet. I am sorry. I needed to go. I, I had that appointment. I had that engagement. I couldn't just get in the water with you. And so... <clears throat> 
probably what's going to happen is that the next day when I, when he tells me, no, but it's so good. Today we're going to do this practice and you're going to be safe. I'm going to say, no, I don't trust you. Just no way. Push me into the pool. How do I know that if you're going to be really trusting and if you're going to do what you promised? Makes sense, right? So if you think from that perspective, if I try to teach a dog that it's okay to be left alone because I will never leave you for longer than you can handle, but then the next day I leave for three hours and my dog goes over threshold, there's no way he can really trust in what I'm doing. And on the other hand, I'm creating a level of anxiety that is like a baseline level of anxiety that is much higher that is lingering there. And yeah. that won't really allow the dog to learn or it will inhibit at a certain level the, the ability of the dog to learn what I'm trying to teach. And so biggest and most important advice, you have to suspend absences if you want your training to be helpful and to be successful. Now, in terms of gadgets or, or, or gizmos, I mean, and, and like treats and baby kits and things that you could use if you actually need to, since you're not going to have your dog over threshold, the likelihood is that you don't need those, all those things. However, if for any other reason you need to have them, for example, I have, I'm working currently with this puppy who's a beagle. Beagles are very well known by getting into the trash and doing a lot of little things more so when they're puppies. We do have a baby gate that blocks the kitchen area and that, you know, it kind of like keeps him safe. And so we, we organize things based on that and based on what works for that particular dog. So you have to be playing around until you find the right recipe. But we try to as much as possible to give the most room we can for them to be comfortable. There's a great video on your um, YouTube channel, which I'll link to, where you talk about that the setup, you, you have to experiment with different setups because you're not necessarily going to get it right the first time. And in the video, you show how the bed, the dog's bed is moved from different locations and it, it just keeps getting up and barking. It's unhappy, crying, doesn't like it until finally there's one, because I don't know what else was changed, but it looked like it was where the dog was being settled or asked to, to settle. And it was one position that he seemed to, or she seemed to be very happy with. Tell us a little bit more about that. That's it. So I actually, I think the dog you're mentioning about there in, in, in my YouTube channel is a dog who we did actually the opposite, which is, it's interesting. And that's why I, I like to bring up those subjects because the main point is that every dog is different and we can't get cogged in what we think it's right necessarily because it doesn't always work. So even though there are certain rules and there are certain things that commonly we do, we do have to stay open to basically honor the dog's needs. And that's the most important thing. And so in this particular case, we had started working free in the house because that was this, the default and what we usually start doing. But with that particular dog, that dog was also noise sensitive. And he did demand bark and he would alert bark to things that he would see outside. That dog had a lot of different anxiety issues. He would mm. see the light through the blinds. And when he would see shadows of people passing by the sidewalk, he would bark. And so at some point we realized that we were in a plateau. We weren't making progress anymore. And we decided to switch to a den area. It was like a second room where they had a couch and a TV. And we started doing our sessions from there. And the door that would basically separate the person from the dog was the, do the door of that bedroom. And so the dog was confined in that case. 
and that did work for us. But in general, the least confinement, the better. But in that particular case, it actually worked for us. So that's why it's so important to consider all of the it's like seeing the, the forest instead of only focusing on one branch. Same goes for, I have this other dog I'm working with, I'm about to start working with, <clears throat> that is a dog who has aggression issues. Mm. And aggression issues at a level that can be dangerous for other people. And, and in this case, the person lives in a house where there's more people around that could potentially be, be, be a risk. And so we will work in the crate. And it's not my, my first ideal setup to work in, but I do understand that I need to be flexible depending on what is going on in that dog's life and set them up for success with the alternatives that we have available. Yeah, I think, I think there's always a risk-benefit analysis of everything. I love what you say about every dog is different because I think part of the problem with, you know, Dr. Google is that Anyone, and I think people really need to understand this, is that anyone today can go online and dish out advice about issues related to our dogs or, or anything in life for that matter. And it's getting harder and harder with all this content to kind of validate what's, you know, what's actually good information and what's really crappy information. And I think anything that gives you a blanket approach to addressing Something as complicated as this, that's so individualized as well, you have to really be very, very careful with, with kind of implementing that advice and just always question. And I think the other thing that I would say to anyone going through this, because I know how hard it is when I couldn't leave for months, I couldn't leave Rosa home alone. Luckily, I work from home, so I'm hugely grateful for that. But if I needed to go to the gym or I just needed a timeout or to go see friends, or I had to make sure that my husband was home and there was always that negotiation. It was difficult. So, you know, I, I really do feel for people who have a, a you know, a full-time job and they can't take the time off. But like you said, you made some really great suggestions in terms of creative ways to kind of address some of those challenges. But I want to loop back and talk about thresholds because up until I started doing this podcast, I hadn't a clue what a threshold was. I mean, I understood the term, but I didn't understand it in terms of, you know, what it means to a dog. And it's such an important concept because as you touched on, when the dog is above threshold, whether that, you know, it's anxiety or whatever emotion, they are not learning, they are not processing. And we see this so often with, and I was guilty of this as well, is trying to give my dog instructions or, or guidance when she's in a highly reactive state or a highly anxious state because, you know, either I wasn't reading her body language properly or I actually just didn't use my brain and think, wait, hold on. If I was, you know, being chased by a million rats, I probably wouldn't be ready to take any, you know, step-by-step instruction or guidance from you then and there, right? So help us understand in layman's terms what threshold actually means and how we might know if our dog is over or above or at threshold. I'll give you first the... the practical view and then some analogies because I think it is very important and the one you gave gave was was a great one with the rats and focusing right so threshold we define it as the moment in time at the the intensity of the stimulus or the duration of the stimulus at what it becomes aversive to the dog in this case for separation anxiety purpose is the duration of absence at what the situation becomes aversive to the dog and the way it looks like 
is by the say the first excuse me overt sign of distress. So that's how we can identify it. So let's say we leave the dog alone, and the dog tries to cope with the situation, and maybe faces around a little bit, has his uh, ears purred, yawns, licks his lips, rooms. But after 30 seconds, he can't handle it anymore and the situation becomes fully aversive to him. At that point, the dog will, let's say, bark for the first time or jump on the door or whine. That we will continue consider the dog's threshold because from that point on also, the, that, that's the other part of the story, the dog won't be able to settle until that intensity of the stimulus is removed. And so if the stimulus stays at the same level or increases even intensity, the dog will continue reacting. The only way that the dog will be able to go below threshold again is if I remove it. And in terms of separation anxiety, it would mean when the absence is done or someone is back and the dog is not alone anymore. And so what happens is that that from that point on, from that threshold on, the dog is in a flight or fight mode. The dog is panicking. And when you're panicking and you are trying to survive, you're not necessarily focused on learning something that you're being taught. So if you're running up, running from a serial killer right now, you're likely not going to be able to learn how to, I don't know, solve a very, very fancy math problem because you're just not in that situation. You're in a primal situation of, I need to survive, otherwise I'm dead. And so that's the way that the dog feels. And that's why we, in all order, of, in all types of training, not only in separation anxiety, when we're exposing the dog to something that isn't nice to him, we try to do it below that threshold because there's more likelihood that the dog will be able to retain the information, process it, and learn it. That's the, I think I, I gave you both <laughs> the practical and the analogy part of things. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's really, really helpful. And just to to kind of reiterate what you were saying there is that the the threshold in relation to separation anxiety is often a it's it's a time issue. So it's so it's really figuring out how long the dog can be alone before it hits threshold. And then I guess then my question for you is is that the starting point of trying to work and overcome, support them through overcoming separation anxiety? Yes. So tell us tell us about that. Like what are the practical things? People who have dogs who suffer with separation anxiety can start doing right away. And I also want to make sure that we have time for you to talk about some of the programs that you do, because I know it's on your website, you have a new program that's coming soon or is already available that people can just buy and they can work through the, the, the issues through your protocols themselves. Yes. So what we do after we assess a dog and we decide that the dog has separation anxiety is three main things. I like to call them the three pillars of separation anxiety training. Those three, three pillars involve first, the management of absences. We already talked about that, right? Suspending absences so our training program can be successful. The second pillar is the medication part of things. And that's something that I also wanted to touch base on uh, regarding what we were talking before, which is Although not all dogs need medication to overcome this disorder, many of them do benefit from it. And with medication, I mean, usually I'm talking about pharmaceuticals that are behavior geared, so behavior medication. And there are many different options. There are daily medication, there is situational medication, and the, the right choice for your dog will depend, of course, on what your vet decides and what your dog is experiencing. So it is very important to work in, in, in our field as a, as a group, as a team, so we all can 
contribute with what we do best. And it's very important to work side by side with a veterinarian, either a, a, a general practitioner or a vet behaviorist, if you have the chance to access to one. And medication will likely increase the dog's threshold. So you can start working at the level that is a little bit higher. So the dog doesn't get to that point that the situation is aversive so early on. And also so the dog is in a better place to actually learn and understand what you're trying to teach him. Usual reasons why we would choose medication are when the dog also experiences other anxiety issues correlating to separation anxiety, because we think or we assume that there's a chemical imbalance that is affecting the way that the dog mm. perceives life. And if we help them feel better, that dog will be able to thrive. And also when the results are inconsistent and we can't really put a finger on what is the connection and what is causing sometimes not having good results because usually we can connect the dots, but sometimes we can, and that's when medication comes handy. Very typical fear of people is, well, but if I give medication, my dog is going to change. The personality is going to change. My dog is not going to be the same. Well, the same as with humans. If you choose the right medication, it shouldn't change. Nothing should change. The only thing that should change is that you're more open to learn and that you're feeling better. And so I was personally actually a person who was in against medication when I was, wasn't working on separation anxiety and was only working on, on different, different other cases, behavioral cases. <clears throat> and I thought at first, this was in my younger years when I was just starting, I felt like if we needed medication, it was because we weren't actually good at what we were doing. Mm. And then over time, I have learned and I have realized that that's not true. And sometimes even only medication can help a dog feel better. And if you're seeking to help a dog feel better, it doesn't matter the way it comes from. What matters is that you're, you're, you're finding the way to make your dog thrive. And if that needs, that, it's, that is medication, well, welcome. Welcome medication because I can help you feel better. And that, that takes me to when we were talking about crate, for example, confinement issues. And so that is actually a very good choice. If you have to change somewhat your setup at a, at a level that isn't really very comfortable for the dog. So medication could really play a good role there in helping the dog to feel a little bit better when you were, when you were, when you have to do certain things that are in the optimal in terms of, of setting up your environment for training. And the third, and one of the, of course, most important parts of the training process is the training in itself. And the training in itself, it's basically daily sessions that are approximations to what we want to achieve, which is the absence. And these sessions have many steps that approximate that are approximations to the door in different ways. Some of them include things that you would bring with you. Some of you are harder than others. Some of them are just jiggling the handle. Some of them are exiting and so on. And they're organized in a strategical way. So the dog can be lullabied to sleep and to relax and learn that he can trust you. And always, of course, keeping the durations of the absences you're doing during the sessions below that threshold. And you were right when you meant, how do we start? So during your assessment, if you find that that threshold is 20 seconds, which means that you left, you close the door and 20 seconds later, after you close the door of your house and separated from your dog, your dog started reacting. You will start working on your first session 
with a duration that is shorter than those 20 seconds. So you set your dog up for success and you will build from there. And I think that's it. One question I know many people will be asking themselves now that I have to ask you, and I know the answer to this is how long is a piece of thread, but how long can it take? If you're starting at 20 seconds, because I know my mom's dog, 10 seconds was her threshold. So how long can it take to take a dog, you know, who has severe separation anxiety, can't be left alone for 20 seconds to the point where you can leave the dog alone for an hour or two? That's a great question. And a question that everybody asks. (laughs) And a question I don't have the answer. The truth is that we don't really know the answer. It depends because we are dealing with an emotional disorder. We're not trying to teach a dog to sit or to lay down or to do something in particular that doesn't involve an emotional response. And so, well, although those could actually elicit an emotional response, but this is an emotional disorder. And so it will depend on the plasticity of the dog, on the environmental factors uh, that contribute to this situation and of the participation of the guardians. And I have had cases that have, and don't take my word for it because again, people tend to get cogged and that's why we don't like to say durations because you say a duration and then we as humans stop listening after that duration and we think that that's the one. And so it's not. But just to give you an example, I have had cases that have had full resolution at seven months of training. And I have had cases that I'm still working on and we have been working for two years. Mm. And so it will depend on the dog. There's not right or wrong. It's just depend on the dog, but there is a high rate of success. Yeah. And so that's what's important to consider. And also what I really love to, to tell my clients is think about this. If you have a dog who is one year old when you start working, yeah, if you think about two years, for example, and you start freaking out, oh my God, two years, what I'm going to do. Think about when you overcome this, your dog will be, let's say three years old. And then you will have all your lives together, hopefully, to be healthy and happy and to don't worry about it because your dog is going to be okay when alone and you're going to be, you're going to have the freedom to go out without feeling nervous and concerned about it. And so in the big scheme of things, two years, six months, one year, three years, isn't as much as a whole life with both of you living a healthy and happy life. Of course, that will vary if the dog is older. And so there is a lot of components and it's case by case. Mm-hmm. And every, every decision of what to do is valid in a way, depending on your circumstances, but that's the rule of thumb. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that it's not a straight line. No type of learning, there's no type of learning, not even an ask that is linear. Yeah. And if you like to think about anything that you have learned so far or something, if you like a hobby, I love sports, for example, or learning languages or playing instruments, anything that you learn, you will have moments where you forget and you need to revisit moments that days that are hard and they just don't work and you just don't feel right. And days that you have breakthroughs and you go into the next stage. And so it is important to consider that as well, because dogs go through plateaus and regressions and learn faster and slower, but in general, it's slower at the beginning. And then it spirals up once the dog has a foundation and starts realizing that this is fine. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you have to count 20 seconds, 20 seconds, and kind of make the math and say like, I'm going to finish in 80 years now. (laughs) 
it's it will get faster and faster and from 30 minutes to 45 and much faster and from one hour to two hours it's super fast and from three to five it's much faster and so on okay that 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 makes a lot of sense and um i i know what that you know as you were saying two years even though my dog thankfully doesn't have separation anxiety now although you never know what can happen in the future i could feel the anxiety for my listeners because if if, if, you know, I have, my dog Rosa has other behavior challenges that I know will take at least a year to work through. But I think just breaking it down and just thinking about being consistent every single day and just taking it one step at a time, it's not easy. It's hard. It's, I think it's emotionally taxing on our dogs, but also on us. It's heart wrenching to be able to. I think, and this is, I guess, one of the things that we don't often talk about is how we as the dog guardians feel about all of this. So we get so hyper-focused on how our dogs feel, but we don't take the time to kind of reflect on our own emotions. And I think that's really, really important because you you might feel frustrated. You might, you know, if you've adopted a dog and you, but you might regret adopting a dog and think, oh my God, what, what have I got myself into? You know, you might be thinking, oh crap, I'm going to be spending all this money on a behaviorist or a trainer and you know, there's just all sorts of things that come to mind and, and lead to all sorts of emotions. And I think we do need to just kind of unpick them, take a deep breath and, you know, it will be okay. There's options to work through things. And I guess that's a good segue into my question about your program that you recently or, or have already launched, where my understanding is that people, you, you're basically talking people through your protocol and they can just, you know, apply it themselves. Is that, is that the case, if I understood correctly? Yes, yes. And before uh, I tell you everything about the, the program, I just wanted to agree with you about how hard it is for the human side too, and how important it is to set yourself up for success. And so one of the main things and one of the main ob- uh, goals when I work with people and their dogs is, first of all, there's no judgment. Every position is valid and you have to understand that there are cer- different circumstances depending on each family. So it is okay. There are different options that are not the pretty ones, but they might be okay. They might, it might be that, yes, it is okay if you let yourself accept that maybe your dog will be better in another house where he doesn't have to be left alone, for example. And it's fine. It's fine mm-hmm. if you make that decision. It's a hard decision to make. And you might feel guilty and you might feel like you fail, but it, you are not. You're giving your dog, the most important thing is that you, you think about the best quality of life for your dog and the best quality of life for you. There are other situations where I have had cases where the dog was old, for example, and after working, they just decided that it wasn't up and that they were going to spend absences forever, but that they weren't going to continue working on it. And it's okay. As long as the dog is safe and the people are safe, it's okay. It just depends on how much money you have in your emotional, in emotional bank account that can sustain this. And that's why it's also important that when you set your expectations, don't set them in weeks, set them in months. Mm. So you understand that this is not going to be fast. So you're not feeling impatient about it. And when you're setting up your environment and when you're finding ways to manage absences and all of that, don't think, okay, I'm going to have all of this cover for a month because probably then it's going to be better. Because if it's not better, you're going to be very frustrated after that. And so try to find ways that sustain this in the long run and not only sustain the times that you go to work and run back to your house to, 
to take shift with the other person who stayed at home, taking care of your dog, but also find moments that are by, that are a rule to find moments for yourself. So I'm going to have this person cover this absence for me so I can go and have a drink. I can home and go and have dinner with my partner because those moments are the ones that actually feed you with the energy needed to keep going day by day. So that would be my, my main advice. And, and, and also one other thing, and I'm sorry, I'm going, I'm pushing my progress to the end, but I, I will go, I will go, go to raise on that in a second. But something else that you mentioned before that I wanted to, to, to cover to, or, or to share with you a little bit about how I think, or how I think this goes is about all the information that's out there and how you make the right decision. And I think there are two main components that, that have to be considered. One is that unfortunately, for some reason, dog behavior is one of those subjects or fields where people feel very comfortable about giving opinions. <laughs> so if I was, if a friend of mine started talking to me about their cardio cardiologist and what they told them about their, their you know, heart condition, Probably I wouldn't start saying, oh, no, you know what? I just ran on the internet, this and that. And I, I think that, you know, the, I don't know, <laughs> your electrocardiogram should be interpreted differently. No, because I, I know I don't know about that. So I'm not going to just start making guesses, right? But for some reason, with dog behavior, people feel entitled to just talk about it and just make, give opinions. Like if you didn't actually need to learn about this to be an expert on this. And I think that's the first main point. There are experts out there. There are credentials. There is, there is unfortunately not yet a profession in itself that would be able to make it a little bit easier for us. It's like, okay, you're a, you're a vet or you're a doctor. So we will go to you if this is the situation we're experiencing. But there are a lot of credentials. And if you start seeking for those, you will find people that actually know what they're doing and can help you to solve your problems in the best way. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, and this is a little bit more subjective, it is important to, and we were talking about this before we start into the podcast or we, we jump into the podcast. It is important to follow your intuition. And I know that I risk, you know, to sound a little bit not very professional with this, but let me put it into context. Mm -hmm. You know what's better for your dog if you really pay attention to it. If you really take a look at what your dog might be feeling or how your dog might be experiences, it's fairly intuitive to know that your dog is not going to be having a good time in a certain situation. Mm -hmm. And so if you feel like what the person is telling you to do just doesn't feel right and you feel like your dog is uncomfortable, be an advocate for your dog. Yeah. Even if you don't know for sure, it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. Just keep looking until you find something that feels like it's actually helping. So I'm sorry if I took a long detour in another direction, but I felt it was important to mention that before jumping into the progress. Yeah, look, I think I think that point about trust your intuition, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with you i think we don't trust our intuition enough and i think it's especially if you're someone who you know like at the beginning i was like well what do i know i'm i'm not a dog trainer i'm not a dog professional but this is my first dog what do i know and my gut would be like mm, that dog walker or mm, that person you know giving me this advice about how to deal with them. i'm like sorry it's just not 
feeling right. And I can see, like, sometimes it would just be like, I'm not even going to try that with Rosa because it just doesn't feel right. And sometimes I would just observe her behavior and instantly I was just like, no, that's not right. So I, I would say to anyone, if you have an iffy feeling, listen to that, listen to that feeling. It's there for a reason. We don't consciously process what it means, but it's the universe's way of telling, you know, and, and it's our subconscious picking up on things that we're not actively really, really processing, telling us just, no, it's not the, it's not the, the, the right way to go. And like, what you said about like just observing and connecting with your dog, I realized since I changed how I think about behavior and that our dogs, and I know I'm going off on a bit of a, of a, of a tangent because with my dog Rosa, she has reactivity issues with kids, with sometimes with other dogs, people in the dark, like just random things <laughs> that to her are not random at all. And when I started to see her reactions more as she's feeling threatened or she's feeling scared or she, and of course I understand that there are dogs that have, you know, as you mentioned before, genetic dispositions to certain behaviors. And sometimes that's quite intense, but I'm talking, I'm not talking about those kinds of, of, of challenges, but just thinking about why is she feeling the way she's feeling? My reaction and my emotions have changed considerably. Whereas before I would, you know, if she saw a child running by and she started barking, I would feel embarrassed. I would feel, you know, I'm like, Rosa, please come. And she's not listening to me. You know, she's like pulling on the leash one way and I'm, you know, trying to get her to come to me. And it's just, you know, I know so many people can relate to these emotions. We're just like frustrated. You're embarrassed. You feel like you're going to get told off because your dog's just barked at someone's child or at someone. And it's, it's not a great feeling. It really is not a great yeah. feeling. But as soon as I changed it to think about, okay, how, what can I do to support her? And knowing that she just sees them as a threat and that we can work through and start working with the behaviors. I'm like, how do we address this? And he said something to me that really changed my, my whole thinking and philosophy around this is like, does she feel that you are there to protect her? And immediately I'm like, no, my reaction doesn't demonstrate to her that I'm there to protect her. And he's like, that's yeah. part of the problem. Yeah. And suddenly yeah. now this, the same behaviors are manifesting. I'm a, I'm a lot more conscious about keep her, you know, as far as possible from her triggers and gently work on the desensitization and stuff. But if I am in a situation where like today we're in the dog park and literally 50 children from a school trip ran by. I'm like, oh my God, that's my biggest nightmare. And of course she ran up because she was in a dog park and loose and they were outside. And she ran up to the, to the gate of the dog park and was like going crazy. And I reflected on my own emotions afterwards. She, she wasn't as bad because I called her and she actually came to me, okay. which was, yeah. And I was fully accepting of the situation and completely understood where she was coming from. And I was calm and I wasn't worked up or, you know, so I know that was a bit of a tangent and going off on a bit of a different topic, but it is back to that point of don't forget yourself as the dog guardian and your emotions and how you think and feel about all of this. It's very important. And oh my God, there's so many thoughts that, that, you know, you, you, you know, like gave me or presented there. The thing is, there's so much ego around all of the situations. We feel so embarrassed and more so let's say when we're a dog, when we're dog trainers and we supposed to have dogs who are perfect and they're not, they're, t they're, t they're dogs, the same as we're humans. Right. And so you feel like you have to somewhat 
I don't know, just just reach certain goals or have certain things all figured out. And we forget to see dogs for who they are. They're beings. And unfortunately for them, they are not in control. And we decide everything about them when they eat, when they pee, when they sleep, when they do everything. And so it is pretty unfair for them in a way. And the least we can do then is to advocate for them and to respect the way they're feeling. In my journey as a person and as a trainer, I have gone through a lot of phases from the typical that probably most trainers started at, which is my dog needs to be perfect because I'm supposed to know this thing. How embarrassed it would be if my clients see me with my dog being horrible and out of control. From that point to nothing in life is for free, and I'm only going to give you this if you do that, to a dog who sleeps with me, shares my food, begs, and that's pretty much whatever she wants. And if at some point I'm hiking with her and there's nothing dangerous, and I call her and she doesn't come, I mean, she, didn't, she just didn't want to come. I know that if I need her because it's safe and we know our we know how to communicate and we have words that are emergency. You have to be here now because I need to protect you. Those words. But if not, if it's not fully a need and it's just because I wanted her to come and she don't want to and that's fine, I have another way to communicate that to her. And I'm okay if she doesn't. Even if it could be maybe embarrassed for me because, oh my God, she didn't listen to what I was saying. That's fine. She is a being all on her own and she has the right to decide what she wants to do at a certain time. And so it is very important. And as you said, it's so, it's so great to start thinking what are they experiencing and why they're responding the way they're responding because dogs don't lie. And if they're responding in a certain way, it's because they're feeling like it. They are feeling they need, they need to respond in that way. And instead of us blocking or covering that sign that they are showing us, we should dig deeper and find what is creating or triggering that sign. Mm. Because the emotional, the underlying emotion that is causing it, it's what we need to address in order to have a better communication and relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I could chat with you for hours and hours, Moira, but I'm conscious that you probably have other things to do other than chat with me um, all day. Let, tell our listeners about your program because I think it would be a great resource. Let's finally get to that. <laughs> the, the third one is the go off on another tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. I promise. So yes, I have different options, service options that I offer to both dog guardians and dog professionals at this time. One of them is the Do It Yourself program, which is available both in Spanish and in English. And this is as the name says, it's a self-paced program. It's a group of chapters and video lessons that guide you through the whole assessment and training of separation anxiety step-by-step. The beauty of it is that everything is organized in, in short pieces of information that are meant to be observed and then work on it until you fulfill those goals before you jump into the next one. So you don't get overwhelmed by all the information at once and you can work on it step-by-step to fulfill your goals. And that's one program I have. I, of course, also offer daily support, which is, you know, I I have only a limited amount of space for that. So the other, it's, the other one is a great option if you want to just work on it and, and just learn more about it at your times, at your availability, based on your availability. 
And I do have another program that is newer than that one, but it is a little bit different. It's, it calls, it's called a shadowing program. And it's basically a case that we went through step-by-step showing all the meetings and all the sessions and everything, all the data that was covered and three months of work. And you can, you can access it to it by seasons. So it's three months, three seasons, or you can access to the full program. That's usually taken more by dog professionals because it's a nice way to see the flow of it. But I do have dog guardians that after they have taken, let's say the do-it-yourself program, this is a nice way for them to sort of observe it in practice and get a better idea of the flow if they are sagging in some of the parts of the training and not sure if they are doing the right thing. It's funny because actually the case, the real case, was from a couple who was um, based in Madrid and Spain, same as you, but they were... Um, the woman was from uh, originally from England and the guy was from uh, the US. So it's like a multicultural mixture that I, I personally love. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. I will link to all of your programs and to your website in the show notes of this episode. I have learned heaps. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you today. Hopefully can invite you back again to the podcast. I'm sure there's so much more for us to unpick. I'll love to. I'll be waiting for your email. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure for me as well. It was great to meet you and also to have this amazing conversation. Thanks, Moira.